Hello, and welcome to the Currents of Folklore podcast. I am your host, Cherish Bishop, and today I am meeting with folklorist Maida Owens from Louisiana Folklife. Thanks for tuning in. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. Maida, would you please introduce yourself? I'd be happy to. Um, I'm Maida Owens. I direct the Louisiana Folklife Program, which is within the Louisiana Division of the Arts. That's the state arts agency in Louisiana. And I've been in the agency for 35 years, and most people are surprised that I could stay in one job, but the job has changed so much according to whichever projects it is. So it's like, being, have, have, it, I feel like I've been in many different jobs sitting at the same desk, which uh, I've been. Um, let's see, I uh, graduated with a master's in anthropology from Louisiana State University. That was a anthropology and geography department. So I was very grounded in manland, um, you know, relationship to the environment, and um, I found that it has really served me well being in the state folklorist position in Louisiana, uh, and especially more recently. But but throughout my um, tenure here, I have uh, drawn upon that training quite a bit. But I must admit that my real professional development came through the American Folklore Society. The, the, the you know, learning from other programs and, and the professional exchange that happens through there uh, profoundly affected my career. Could you describe that a little, little bit more? You say if, you know, the professional development really happened through the society and can you give some examples as to that? Uh, sure. Well, one thing is the sheer size of it. Uh, you know, I, I had been to the American Anthropological Association and I understand it's dramatically changed in more recent years, but it was huge and you just get lost. It was very hard to connect. But with the American Folklore Society simply being a smaller uh, community, the, the dialogue, um, the, the way it's structured, uh, you, you know, it was very easy to connect with other people with similar interests. Um, you know, I, I started at a time when we talked about the public, the, the academic public uh, divide. I personally didn't experience that in Louisiana. Um, there has always been a fabulous relationship between the university academics and the uh, folklife program. Uh, I, I just found it very easy to connect, uh, especially the other state folklorists, you, you know, were incredibly generous in their time uh, answering questions for a newbie. And so I always feel like that's part of my responsibility to also you know, help the others that are coming along and getting started. Well, I could say I've personally experienced that. I believe you and I met a few years ago when I was living abroad and just happened to be in Louisiana and was looking to see what activities were going on. And I joined you guys there for one of your annual meetings. And you guys took me on a field trip and we went around and we discussed land loss. And I felt so welcome. That was my first experience, you know, going to any kind of folklore meeting. And so this you talking about everyone being so welcoming, I could 100% attest to that. Um, going forward here, were you talking about like AFS conferences and such? You gave a really um, great address at last year's conference 
speaking about the job, but the job has changed so much according to whichever projects it is. So it's like being, have, have, it, I feel like I've been in many different jobs. That, you know, I'm a native Louisianan. I, I was born in New Orleans and raised in Baton Rouge. Um, went to school here in the 70s. We were talking about the, the amount of time changed, but the football field metaphor has been here uh, since the 70s. So I was definitely aware of the environmental changes. And, you know, I, did, I wasn't in New Orleans for Hurricane Katrina, but we certainly experienced it. Um, that's where I learned of, you know, FEMA referring to Baton Rouge as the staging area, you know, that Baton Rouge was a staging area. So we were very much affected by it. But again, it didn't, you know, I knew it was happening, but it was always, you know, farther south. It was always a little, a little bit removed, not a feeling of urgency, even though the people on the coast would completely disagree with that. Uh, you know, they, they would say that things have been urgent for a long time, and now I, I totally agree with that. But it took a personal experience to, to really motivate me to start um, experiencing uh, exploring the environmental issues and thinking about how folklorists could help this. Now, that started for me in 2016. Um, in 2016, Louisiana experienced not one, but two extreme precipitation events. And I did not even know that that phrase was not used at that time. We didn't know what was happening. But in the spring, I think it was in March, North Louisiana experienced it. And then in August, uh, the area between Lafayette and Baton Rouge experienced it. Uh, one community in Zachary received 36 inches of rain in 18 hours. I mean, um, let's see, I, you know, it's like, this is extreme. Uh, so uh, I did not flood, but a lot of people did. Uh, a lot of people that I knew uh, flooded. Um, and this was in Baton Rouge. This was not where flooding is supposed to be um, a problem. And it was in a house, in a neighborhood that generally, you know, there are neighborhoods that you know have flooding problems and frequently it's drainage and things like that. But I wasn't in one of those. And so I experienced the 2016 um, flood and this was my thought process. Oh my goodness, I might have to evacuate. I've never thought about evacuating before because this is where people evacuate too. Where would I go? And then the next question was really affected me. I said, where's everybody else going? And so that kind of laid down the path that started me on this path of really looking at the environment. Um, and what I ended up thinking about in the next few many months, um, you know, would I just move to a slightly higher ground? You know, with the hills just north of, most people in the rest of the country would not call them hills, but for us, <laughs> it's a slightly higher elevation. Um, would I go to North Louisiana? 
you know, my, my great grandparents were from that area and I have friends there. So is that where I would go? Or for some reason, Nashville pops in my head or do I go to Nashville for some reason? Well, I ended up deciding not to do anything that I decided to stay. Um, you know, I, I watched friends and helped them uh, at times with rebuilding because it was it, the flooding was extensive. Neighborhoods that had never flooded got five feet of water in their houses. Uh, it, it was uh, quite dramatic. Um, but I started watching, I started thinking about this. And so that when the Louisiana Folklore Society started having conversations about uh, the society responding to our environmental uh, situation, I was primed. You know, I had been passively thinking about it. I was wrapping up a project and wondering what I would be doing next. So in 2018 at the Louisiana Folklore Society meeting, and I think that sounds like the one that you attended, because uh, that's where we did the field trip down, down the bayou, we had what we called bayou culture conversations, you know, relationship to the environment. We didn't know where we were going with it. You know, we didn't have any preconceived notions, but we invited a lot of locals to come in and participate. And by a lot, I mean, maybe 75 people in a room. You know, it wasn't huge. The society is relatively small. Um, and they decided they wanted to focus on this. And in discussion, we decided not to use the word Bayou culture conversation, even though the alliteration is quite nice. Um, because the people on the coast are sick and tired of people talking about it. And so we wanted to imply action, okay? So we came up with Bayou Culture Collaborative, um, which has its own issues, but that's what we settled on. So, there, then uh, I was in a position to actually do something with it relatively quickly. So I negotiated with the National Endowment for the Arts. Um, you know, each state gets what they call the Folk and Traditional Arts Partnership funds, and that's out of the, the allocation to the states. It's not the competitive um, grants that everybody else goes in. So anyway, so I get, I get some funds. And so I requested that I uh, redirect the funds to the coast and they approved it. So uh, what I decided on the first year was to focus, to pilot it only in Terrebonne and Lafouche parishes, which are the two parishes most impacted by land loss. Terrebonne is by far number one, but, but uh, Lafouche is um, profoundly impacted also. So we, we experimented with a number of different things. And the other thing I did was I did not start with documentation. And that is because this area in South Louisiana have been studied by all kinds of different researchers, not just ethnographers, folklorist types, um, filmmakers, um, 
reporters that they collectively call anybody who comes to interview you as an extractive industry. They actually refer to that. Now that's the first time that I had ever had my work referred to as extractive. <laughs> so I didn't want to do anything that made it sound like I was gonna be using them in any way. So I decided I had to do something that would be giving. And I came up with workshops. So through the Louisiana Folklore Society, we found, uh, we, we supported some of them incredibly small, like $350 grants to do everything from writing workshops to writing about sense of place to, um, we even did a, uh, a field school the second year. Then we, uh, but a lot of it ended up focusing on what became the passing it on workshops. Now, these are not full-blown apprenticeships um, and the expectations are not necessarily huge, uh, but it's a way to reach out to communities and say, I want, I have some, a tangible way to support your community and you get to determine how it, how it's supported. So uh, I ended up over the years narrowing it and making it a little bit more focused where they, it could be any tradition in certain areas. Um, but I didn't tell them which tradition where. Now, building on 35 years of experience at the state level, I had a network. Um, so I relatively easily could go in and, and do what some people have derogatively uh, called Rolodex field work. Well, you know, I was basically using my ro Rolodex to reach out to people and offer them these funds. And a, the ones that I had an established relationship with, it went very smoothly, but there are still, after doing this for almost four years, um, I'm having a lot of reticence with communities I've never worked with before, especially if I don't really have a good entree, if I can't say so-and-so suggested that I call and talk to you, because it's government is here to help you you know, and I have free money for you because these were not, these are not matched grants. So I um, negotiate with them. I talk about options. Frequently, I tell them they need to up their payment to the, to the tradition bearer. You know, I suggest maybe not just one Saturday, but a series of Saturdays. Um, but the criteria is that the tradition you know, experience that the people attending the workshop walk away with a deeper knowledge of the tradition. And it's not just about the tradition, but actually doing the tradition. So now, um, you know, I, I'm not funding just a demonstration at a festival where, you know, somebody sees gumbo being cooked or something, that this is more like a cooking class where, and, and they get to pick who comes, that they, they choose whether it's open to the public, they choose whether or not it's only the members of their society 
or they're, uh, we have a number of tribal groups in Southeast Louisiana, especially, um, but they decide who can even attend. So um, foodways is very popular, a lot of interest in plant lore or foraging or native plants or medicine, a lot of environmental issues, but we've also done cloth doll making. Um, which was really cool because they, uh, the woman wanted the girls to come with a parent or, or an elder and together they make the doll that looks like the little girl. And, you know, and she works all this wonderful identity um, um, work into her workshop. So, you know, they're, they're very, very different. Uh, they've been in French, uh, this this spring, I've had a number that are focused on French storytelling or French songs. Um, the word got out that this was possible and I started getting more, um, uh, but then there's still challenges. There's still communities that I have still not gotten into even though I've done quite a bit of pursuing of people, but after a point you're just harassing, you know, so, you, so I back off. So those are the passing it on workshops. So that's, that's how I can help the coastal communities. Then the second part of it uh, became what I call sense of place and loss workshops. And before COVID, these were in person and they were intended to be these experiential workshops with artists and scientists and tradition bearers and getting to know each other and simply dialogue. Well, then COVID came and we had to cancel the second one that we had planned. So we pivoted and did some Zoom workshops that, were, that are still online. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of laying the groundwork for, for where I am now. Um, but the purpose of the sense of place and loss workshops, I realized after the initial ones, is that I really needed to take a step back and get the arts and culture networks up to speed on the issues. That I, I wanted to prepare them to be ready to talk to policymakers and scientists. So uh, that ended up being the focus. I've done uh, the arts network, I've done staff development workshops. Um, last week, I talked to the managers of the state's uh, Main Street programs. Um, there are 40 locations around the state uh, that are, I think they're 40, but anyway, they, you know, trying to inform them of what's going on. Because even though Louisiana is experiencing the effects of climate change earlier than most of the country, and that's because not only are we a coast, but we're a river delta. All river deltas in the world are experiencing it worst first. So it's us in Bangladesh at the time. Um, so the idea was to prepare them 
to be ready to talk. So that's the sense of place in lost workshops. And they're morphing. I, I learned something new and incorporate it. Um, like last week, um, when I talked to the Main Street managers, um, they really wanted me to talk about preparing their community to receive the climate migrants. Well, that ended up morphing into receiving any kind of newcomer because even though we are on the forefront of all these ecological changes, there are a lot of people that are oblivious to it. They're like me pre-2016. And so by shifting the dialogue about welcoming climate migrants to welcoming any kind of newcomer, immigrants and climate migrants, the ones that are farther away from the coast and not living this daily would see the relevancy and it ended up being quite effective. I got pretty good feedback on it, on that workshop. And um, I, I've already thought of things I wanna add, but not necessarily dramatically change. Um, I found that it has really served me well being in the state folklorist position in Louisiana uh, and especially more recently, but but throughout my um, tenure here, I have uh, drawn upon that training quite a bit. So for our listeners, can you explain to us more of what um, the Main Street Manager's Workshop is and why you feel a sense of urgency in getting practitioners able to speak about these political issues? Okay, well, there's a state program and I think it's in all 50 state you know, all the states and territories. Um, but it is uh, in our division of historic preservation and the main streets are competitive. They apply to become a main street program site. And so the managers are the ones who run this program. And so they're a blend of economic development and cultural development with the idea of revitalizing downtowns. And there's a national Main Street organization. Um, you know, they, they're related to the National Trust of Historic Places. Um, so that's a sister agency that, you know, the, the man who runs that program is a couple of offices down the hall from me. So we knew each other. We had a, a you know, longstanding relationship. We had never worked together on a, on a project though. So when I first started all this, I did a um, you know, professional development session for the staff just to help them see how they could plug it in. Because I immediately saw how expansive this could become, that this is actually a lot more than uh, folklore or folk life, and it's more than the arts. It's, I became concerned about the broadest implication of cultures of uh, how the changes that are coming are gonna impact cultures. And so this, gradu this gradually developed over time, but one, I want to encourage the people who are leading these kinds of programs. Um, for example, I've also talked to arts administrators, the, the regional arts council directors and such, to start 
thinking about what is going to be happening in the next 10 years. And while they're doing that, to start thinking about themselves as future ancestors. So I start my workshops off with what will your great great grandchildren wish you had done? That's a really powerful question. And to give an example of that, like I, I beta test this constantly with staff and others. Um, and one said, you really need a story to illustrate that. And I said, well, over all my years of working at the state, the example that I definitely heard the most was, I wish they had taught me French, but it could be any language. So the loss of language is definitely, but it could be a, another one is, I wish I had learned how to cook my grandmother's recipes or all I have is a list of ingredients, you know? Um, I don't know how she got, uh, you know, her sticky buns don't, had a texture that was different and I can't get the texture, you know, or, or there's, well, why doesn't the icing flow the way she did it or something like that? Um, and, and exchange it for whatever your favorite dish is that, you know, is a, fa is a family favorite. I challenge them to start thinking about the, about the future. And then especially with the Main Street managers, the interesting challenge was to also, for them to start thinking more about culture, period. I, you know, I started off, I know some of you are probably wondering why are we talking about culture? We're more economic development and such. But I hope by the end of this time, you'll see why I'm bringing this up. And, that, and the short answer for me is that culture and connections is what gives us a sense of well-being, a sense of place. It gives meaning to life. You know, that's, that's my short answer. Well, and so often, right, like a, a connection to a landscape or an area, right, is what really drives people and, and, and fuels that sense of connection. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so what happens when it moves, when you have to move, or in this case, what happens when a whole lot of newcomers arrive and change the culture of your community? And uh, so looking at the immigrant research and especially Welcoming America, um, you know, there, there's some wonderful publications that I, I draw on uh, for that work, because it's not just welcoming climate migrants, but it's welcome, welcoming uh, international um, migrants, immigrants too. Um, so, but, and then I challenge them and then the communities that pay attention in this process and are concerned about the people in addition to the buildings are the ones that are gonna thrive in the future. And there are things that we have to pay attention to culture with intention right now. It's so easy to look back and say, wow, I wish I had spoken French to my children, but I, was, I just didn't. Or, it, or whatever, insert whatever language, or I wish, you know, I wish I had taught them where to find mayhaws. So I, I really emphasize that a folklorist have strategies 
that you can use at this time. And it's really the arts too, because community engage artist community engagement projects are really important in this, whether or not they're traditional arts or not. But it's the artist that knows how to bring the long-term residents together with the newcomers and try to overcome that tension that is always, it's gonna be there. It's not, it's not, if it's gonna be there, it's going to be there. And so, and they don't even have to come very long, far away. You know, a good example is I was talking with um, uh, somebody in Lafayette that's very active in, in their culture world and talking about Lafayette is a natural receiving community. Well, to a certain, you know, if you wait a hundred years, it'll be a sending community too, but it'll, it'll be a receiving community for, for, for quite a while. Uh, and they said, well, they wouldn't have any problem integrating into Lafayette. You know, it's all the same culture. Well, no. <laughs> for one thing, the, the bayou people that live on the water and can walk out and get crabs for their dinner that night um, are going to be changing e ecosystems. Um, but even if they're not even that far from their ecosystem, that can cause problems because uh, there's a small town in Chau uh, called Chauvin, just south of Houma, Louisiana. And a whole bunch of them are not coordinated, but they, they simply, a whole bunch of them moved to a subdivision just north of Houma. So you're talking 20 miles, something like that. And there was actually a newspaper article about the tension of the newcomers that they don't know how to do things here. And that's moving 20 miles. So it, you know, it, it doesn't take Bayou to, to Lafayette from, you know, the Bayou Cajuns to the, to the um, Prairie, you know, Cajun area, um, much less descending on North Louisiana. But the sad fact is that most of the, a lot of the people who are moving leave the state our population is declining and it's also aging. The first to leave are the uh, middle class and the young. And that's leaving uh, people who will not be able to afford to leave or the very wealthy, which it doesn't matter, you know, if they can build up their house or it's not wiping them out if a house gets wiped out by another hurricane. So our demographics are changing significantly. Um, and then you layer on top of that, the economic changes that are happening. And the next 10 years is supposed to be uh, economic disruptions that are equivalent to the industrial revolution. Seriously, just in Louisiana or all over. Now that's over the entire country. Okay. And even though some of our demographics may not apply to other parts of the country, because other parts are going to be growing and getting, they're getting younger. Um, but er, the disruption will be everywhere. So 
I sincerely see a role that folklorists can help communities uh, by offering strategies to deal with the cultural changes that are coming. And that will affect their well being of the community. This seems like a good segue here into your most recent workshop um, that you gave with the American Folklore Society about why climate change needs folklorists, right? And there's a whole lot that can kind of fall under this scope, right? Because there's a lot that's going to happen during climate change, as you were just talking about, like demographic changes, economic changes, you know, migration, like there's, there's a lot that fall, fall, falls under here. And I wonder if you can kind of walk us through that a little bit. Well, as I said in the uh, workshop that I did with, with AFS in February, um, folklorists are bringing both um, knowledge and uh, skills to this endeavor that communities really need and then possibly influencing um, policy making eventually, which is a lot of my strategy right now is uh, working towards changing um, policies, which I, I can talk about too. But what folklorists really bring to the table is that we really understand cultural dynamics and frequently uh, people in these positions of Main Street managers, um, arts council directors, uh, even mayors, you know, and, and city leaders, they may not really understand these cultural dynamics. And so guiding them on that um, with public, and a lot of this is with public folklorists too, is that we tend to have a lot of experience uh, doing all kinds of different cultural programming. But not only that, but with many diverse cultures. So whereas arts administrators may really know dance or they may know theater, you know, we tend to be multidisciplinary, multifaceted, you know, multi, multi all the above. And, uh, you know, we, those with a little bit of experience can transfer those from culture to culture and, and um, genre to genre. So, um, we really have a lot to bring to these kind of projects. The other thing is a lot of us have some serious administration skills, which when you've been doing them so long, you may take for granted, but you know, basically we can get a lot done. <laughs> Quite. Um, many of us are also aware of immigrant issues. Um, and so if you've worked with migration um, uh, with immigrants, all of that knowledge is transferable to uh, climate migrants. And then also our understanding of TEK, traditional ecological knowledge. Um, and frequently we know who to talk to. For example, I was talking with one federal agency who said, <laughs> that they had received um, instructions that they really needed to address diversity and, and inclusiveness. And they hadn't a clue as how to start. And so 
you know, I said, well, we know how to do that. <laughs> and sure, not every folklorist has every single one of these skills or, or, or knowledges or, you know, or, or base are knowledgeable about every single culture or every single genre, but we know a whole lot more than most, uh, than the average person on the street. Sure, you'll run into the, the music lover who knows the blues more than I will ever, ever be able to absorb, but not many, not many people have the breadth of experience that public folklorists or, or academic folklorists too have with such a range of cultures and, and cultural genres. So, um, but there are some things, as I said in the workshop that, you know, we have to, folklorists will have to do. You'll have to learn about um, policies uh, with climate change. You'll have to learn the adaptation professions jargon and their strategies. Um, very important is to understand intersectionality. Well, the odds are that a folklorist is coming, even if you don't know what that word means, like it, it's relatively new uh, on the jargon scene. Um, once you find out what it is, you're gonna say, oh, I, yeah, you know, you, know, you know what that means, you know. Um, what was new is I had to learn more about trauma and form strategies. That, that was broadening, but I was kind of glad to find out that I didn't have to expect to become a trauma-informed uh, professional um, or to, to give trauma-informed care, but I needed to incorporate it into my work. But every, wherever you are, if this is of interest to you, you're going to have to figure out what's going on in your, your place, whether it's your state or your city or even your neighborhood, is how is, how is climate impacting wherever it is you're gonna, you're gonna work. So you're gonna have to figure out what, age, what federal and state agencies are at play. Uh, there are a lot of them, it's very complicated. Um, you're going to have to connect with environmental groups. You're going to have to connect with the cultural researchers and all the activists. So yes, to get involved in this kind of work, there is a, you're going to have to put a certain amount of effort into it. But you are absolutely bringing a lot to the table. You, your, your skills and your knowledge are needed in this conversation. Now, that brings me to the Bayou Culture gatherings, which I wanna share about, because um, wanting to broaden awareness of this and broaden the conversation, the Louisiana Folklore Society decided that the Bayou Culture Collaborative needed to be a forum for people to exchange ideas, get to know each other. So we started producing in January 2022, just this past January, what we call the Bayou Culture Gatherings. And those are on Zoom because we want to attract people who aren't necessarily paid to go to meetings. So, uh, and we, it's such a large geographic range that I think Zoom 
uh, was the appropriate way for us to approach this. And the idea is to offer um, some content about it, have an opportunity to discuss, but just as important for them to get to know each other. And we thought maybe in six months, we'll, you know, we'll start work talking about policy, but let's just get to know each other. Well, the first one in January, we had 150 register and 90 attended. They formed four working groups without us even prompting it. That's incredible. At the second one, the governor's office rep attended and he wants to talk to us about policy. <laughs> so we are drinking from the fire hose at, the, at this particular moment. And, um, but we are just uh, amazed. And the whole goal of this effort goes back to what I said about the collaborative in general is we want culture to be addressed in the coastal conversation in the environmental conversations. So exactly what that means, we don't know, but we're very excited that we are providing a way for, to move this conversation along. That's absolutely incredible. <laughs> and you're doing such good work. I mean, the fact that I, I love this description you gave of drinking from the fire hose. Obviously this was needed, and people are enthusiastic about it, right? And I feel that, especially recently, um, with you know recent political you know environment, right? That climate change is more frequently discussed now, and so when, when people take action, right, it, it's 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 able to draw some some attention and some interest, right, from from different parties, as you had mentioned, right, like the activists, the you know the people working in the in, in environmental sector. But I think you know this um, new cultural lens can really shine a different light on that, and that's something that, as you said, right, that that folklorists can really get involved with. I, I love the phrase you use of you know, paying attention to culture with intention, right? I mean, that's what folklorists do. And so just being able to take on a new intersection of this, as you were talking about, is something that, yeah, folklorists are able to get started with. Um, Two of the American Anthropological Association, I understand it's dramatically changed in more recent years. Well, I do want to um, help create a, an interest group about climate uh, and how we can interact with it. And, you know, we had a nice attendance at the workshop. Um, and so I'm hoping to create some kind of interest group within AFS uh, so that we can um, facilitate our involvement in this. Um, I, I'm learning constantly. You know, every, every single workshop I do, I find something else that I need to go investigate. You know, one question it might be. But if this is something you feel um, drawn to, there's need for it. There, there is absolutely need for it. Thank you so much, Amanda, for being willing to talk to us today. I look forward to continuing this conversation. And I hope that others will reach out as well. I think it's a really timely subject and something that we should be taking more seriously.
My thanks to Amanda for meeting with me today. If you wish to get contact with her or want to learn more about her work, you can find her contact information and links to the Louisiana Folklife website in the show notes. Mm-hmm.